0: To delete a bunch of apps on your phone, nothing will. Um, I'm actually, I'm delighted to be able to share the next hour of dialogue with three very knowledgeable SMEs. Um, I would like to do a go around in a moment and have them each introduce themselves and provide some context to their perspectives that they bring to the conversation today. But before we get started, I just wanted to go through a few um, housekeeping rules. Um, Today's webinar is being recorded and is on the record and open to the press, and it will be available early next week on NSI's website, We will be taking questions from you all, our virtual attendees today, so you are welcome to include your name and organization with your questions, but it is not required, and we will get to as many of those questions as we can. So I'm first going to hand the mic, so to speak, over to Lindsay and let her give um, a brief introduction of her background and the perspective she brings to today's conversation on China's digital tools of oppression.
1: Hi, Suzanne, thanks so much for the introduction and thank you to NSI for having me for this conversation, which I think is incredibly timely. Um, I won't spend too long on the intro, but I'm Lindsay Gorman. I run the technology and geopolitics team at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy. We study the competition over technology between autocrats and democracies um, on emerging technologies like AI, biotech, quantum information, and their intersection with the information space, And I come at this issue originally from a background of a technologist. I'm a computer scientist and quantum physicist by training and have been doing technology and national security policy for the better part of the last decade in D.C. and recently served in the Biden administration, um, working on U.S.-China technology competition strategy. Great great to be here with the the two other uh, very esteemed experts who are, you know, people I've learned from um, throughout the last few years.
0: Great, well, we're glad to help, um, have you. And so, Yachou, you're next.
2: Hi, um, my name is Yachou Wang. I'm a senior China researcher for Human Rights Watch. Uh, I've been with Human Rights for six years now. Uh, I worked on censorship uh, issues uh, for uh, uh, concerning China for Human Rights Watch and uh, Human Rights Watch uh, has published extensively also on surveillance issues um, and in the past several years, our focus has grown into the, you know, more focused on the Chinese government's uh, role in undermining human rights uh, around the globe. Great. Well, it's good to have you. Jeffrey, over to you.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. Uh, my name's Jeff Kane. I'm a fellow at the National Security Institute. I'm also a senior fellow at a think tank called the Lincoln Network, which does technology policy I come from a background as a foreign correspondent. I had spent uh, more than a decade um, since the time of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. I had been a journalist um, in various countries, and China being one of them, also Korea, um, went to North Korea many times, Turkey, Ukraine. And my specialty was investigating how authoritarian regimes uh, deploy novel technologies like AI and facial recognition. My most recent book is called The Perfect Police State, which is about the Uyghurs and surveillance dystopia that they Live under. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate the plug. Uh, now at work on another book and uh, happy to be here today. Uh, I think this is going to be a great conversation.
0: Great. Well, we're got, glad to have you. So I just wanted to kick off with sort of a scene setter. And Gacho, I'm going to defer to you first on this one. But in your your opinion, what is the single most repressive measure, technology wise, both inside the country, China, and, and outside as well with international um, constituencies?
2: I don't know whether I can say you know there is one single most uh you know important important repressive technological tool by the Chinese government but I do wanted to uh really raise the issue with WeChat because you know we have been hearing so much about TikTok uh, facial recognition you know uh AI generated uh, um other kind of uh, repressive mechanism but uh, there isn't been a lot of talk about around the WeChat which uh, I think, it, you know, is it, something that is important to know. I think what, the reason it hasn't been talked that much is because WeChat is primarily used by Chinese-speaking people, whether it's people inside the country or Chinese uh, people living um, outside the country, like me, who came from China, now living in the United States. Uh, you know, WeChat is such an important surveillance, uh, censorship and surveillance tool is because it's so everybody uses it uh you know it's uh it, you use wechat to uh read the news you use wechat to chat with your family to get a taxi uh, get a food delivery pay your bills everything it's a super app so everybody inside the country and outside country people are trapped in this this wechat ecosystem and it's it's, it's a system that the chinese government has tight controls uh you know what you read uh, how you communicate with your family members your friends your colleagues uh, where you went, which taxi you hail from where to where, everything, right? And then the um, you know, the, it, it's also used by the diaspora, uh, similarly as it was used in China. But, the, you know, when people hear about, oh, the Chinese people who came to the U.S., let's say, uh, who live here, they are, you know, in their eco, uh, information bubble as they were in China, which is true. But I wanted to emphasize that, you know, like I live in New York City. They are The Chinese diaspora is big. Um, you know, we have our own, news like News bubble that cater to us who specifically for Chinese people living in the US, where the restaurant has discount, where there's the in the, 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 the you know new Chinese salon, club, whatever, right? And the issue is that you know we get this information from an app that is controlled by the Chinese government, that is censored by the Chinese government. So for any kind of activity in the United States for the Chinese diaspora that has nothing to do with what's going on inside the country, we still get the information that are filtered by the Chinese government our activities are still surveyed by the Chinese government even we do you know our life we do carry out our life without you know is not that related to what Beijing uh, what's going on inside the country and uh, you know there has been real consequences um, for uh, you know democracy in in the diaspora. Uh, You know, recently, you know, there is a big leak by the Canadian intelligence um, that, uh, you know, the the Chinese government has interfered in the Canadian election. And one big uh, tool of interference is through WeChat because the Chinese diaspora get the information um, about Elections in Canada through WeChat and the Chinese government, you know, is able to manipulate the information and tilt uh you know how people are gonna vote uh through WeChat. And this well, is I'm I'm glad you brought up WeChat because I think a lot of us just think of a TikTok.
0: So that's um a very um enlightening um technology to bring to the conversation along that vein, though, of technology and oppression. You know, I think about the different regions, and that brings us to Xinjiang, which I have a few questions to ask the group about that, but I had first hoped that Jeffrey could kind of set the scene about kind of the landscape, so to speak, or the history of that region um, to help our attendees who are not familiar with the oppression there um, come to light. Um, Yes, so the region
3: of Xinjiang, China, it's in the west. Um, And this is a region um, that uh, is is quite large but sparsely populated. It's a a Muslim uh, minority group, primarily Muslim minority group called the Uyghurs, who perhaps you have seen um, in the news. Uh, Since 2016, the Chinese government has set up um, perhaps the most sophisticated surveillance apparatus ever seen in this region. It's been an experiment And how to create a total dragnet, a total security state that can see all, and that could even attempt to predict whether crimes or acts of terrorism might happen uh, in the future. Uh, Maybe, you know, if anyone's seen the movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise, this is sort of like a a real life um, science fiction movie or a 1984 type uh, novel. It's it's truly astounding. Um, just the the intensity of repression, with the help of some of these new technologies, um, has become over the years. So I had first gone to the region back in 2009. Um, there there were protests in the region back then, and I had kept returning over the years. I had gone back about once every one or two years just to. Um, document and monitor this story that was developing that seemed to be getting worse and worse, worse each year. Uh, my most recent trip was in December 2017, which was when the the repression was picking up to just levels that um, I, I mean, you know, I had also no other uh, journalist or human rights researcher had had seen before. It, it you know, it was like I, I felt like I had descended into this dystopian future. Landscape where you know there were these police pillboxes on every corner and cameras watching you. I mean, I was uh, I was talking to to Uyghurs who had um, government cameras literally installed in their homes, uh, monitoring them. Uh, you know, and it's just um, it, it was just I, words cannot even describe just how intense the repression had become. About one tenth of the minority population. Um, this is about one point eight million people. Um, out of 11 million people from this th- these minority groups were taken away to concentration camps um, without being charged with crimes. They were essentially charged with what you could call pre-crimes. Um, the idea that you know, with the help of this artificial intelligence system called the IJOP or the Integrated Joint um, uh, Operations Platform, um, that you know the, the 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 system had predicted that because they had uh, read a Quran or a religious book of some kind or were engaged in some some kind of religious activity in particular, that they might be terrorists. And so they were taken away for any, any number of ridiculous infractions that have nothing to do with terrorism at all. So it was a complete a total dragnet, you know, using some of these new facial recognition and AI technologies, but a system that was surprisingly um, unsophisticated in a way uh, because the the algorithms that they were using um, were clearly, I mean, you know, reading a book means you're gonna be a terrorist. That's not a very sophisticated cause and effect relationship. So the algorithms, um, you know, whatever was being used at at the time in Xinjiang was really uh, an overreach and quite a blunt algorithm designed to, um, you know, create this total dragnet or as uh, Chinese officials would often say that, you know, to to pull out the weeds or to kill the weeds, you have to, um, you know, wipe out the entire field, you have to use fertilizer everywhere, they would often use these terms and that describes their mindset, just round up everybody you can and re-educate them you know a, a term there for brainwashing, and then um, ho- hopefully put them back into the world in the future and they 'll be good uh, good citizens and good loyal followers of the party with no uh, questions asked um, truly a terrifying situation i I went after I was kicked out of China in December two thousand and seventeen uh, after this last trip they figured out what I was up to and they they just they just told me they asked me to leave so i um, I, I after that moved to Turkey and spent three years among the refugees there. Um, managed to track down some defectors from the Ministry of State Security uh, who had had helped build this apparatus. These were ethnic Uyghurs who had left China um, and who, uh, you know, wanted to tell their stories. You know, we were just talking about WeChat. One of the the, um, points that they revealed with a lot of documentation was that the the, um, local party authorities and the Ministry of State Security um, to gather data on people, they only had to ask companies to hand over three to five years worth of data, uh, and that would be that. There was no, you know, due process or no system of, of you know, are we going to give this data or not? Um, it's literally that Chinese apps get asked by the party or Ministry of Public Security or whomever, give us the data. The data is handed over, and that's that. So this is the security situation that we uh, we now all face around the world with this enormous potential for monitoring. We are seeing. Around the world, many of the same um, technologies deployed in Xinjiang now moving uh, to other parts of the world. Authoritarian regimes being used by Americans, and there are enormous or no, enormous risks to privacy and security for using these.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that was 2017. It's 2023, yeah. and when I was listening to your book, I, I it sounded like a future state that you were talking about. So I had to rewind it and listen again in the forward just to make sure that that was current or as of 2017, really very, very disturbing. So, very disturbing. Lindsay, I wanted to check in with you about the different types of technology um, that the CCP is using um, and also kind of the policy response to that. Yeah, well, there are definitely
1: definitely quite a few. And actually, as, as recently as today, we have some fairly significant steps towards policy responses on the ability of technologies to undermine human rights. But just to give a quick overview, I think, of the technologies that are either being used in Xinjiang today or being exported and raising repressive concerns around the world, I think, you know, probably the one that people are most familiar with is facial recognition and artificial intelligence, um, being able to pick out someone um, on the street, there's sort of famous, potentially overblown reporting of um, the Chinese state being able to track down a specific reporter within something like under 10 minutes, um, you know, anywhere in the country in China. You know, I think there are questions on how well that actually works um, versus sort of the the image around it. But, um, but, but it's, I think, not too far stretched to see how, that can be used and is being used to track and surveil populations um, and quash freedom of assembly and gathering and political, political organization. Um, part of those technologies also had built into one of the proposed standards for, for facial recognition systems, um, identif- identification of ethnic background um, and racial features, um, which obviously poses problems uh, from a discrimination point of view um, in democratic societies, but is actually useful in a, in a sardonic way in targeting the Uyghur Muslims and other ethnic minorities um, in China. So that's, I think, you know, one bucket. Another really important sort of surveillance tool is electronic communications and surveillance and commercial spyware that's been used and has proliferated not just in China and sort of not even originated in China, but really around the world, including used by some democratic governments, um, and that's sort of, sort of surveillance Um, apps and and such on on individual phones and individual wi-fi networks that suck up communications um, and can be used to to blackmail or to assess if some some small violation um, has happened such as in the case of Xinjiang of you know potentially contacting relatives overseas even or searching for problematic things on the web Um, that's the kind of repression that sort of these these, these spyware tools enable. Um, another one that I think has not gotten quite as much attention, but is about to, is the use of DNA surveillance. Um, obviously, that's very sensitive um, personal information or DNA, um, but it's being collected en masse um, by Chinese biotech companies, there's a strong um, technology advantage to collecting this data and to sequencing it um, for applying artificial intelligence tools to future biotechnology. Um, But it obviously comes with really serious potential repressive consequences of being able to target ethnic groups um, or people based on their DNA signatures. So definitely something to watch out for. And areas I should add where as many of these are, where we have a history of U.S. companies or companies in democracies either inadvertently um, or potentially even being aware that they were aiding the Chinese surveillance state, um, and including in Xinjiang with these technologies. So it's obviously hard to say whether whether businesses were really aware of the extent of the repression that their technologies were being used for. Um, but it's certainly something we've seen in the past, and sort of shifting gears into the policy angle, something that at least this administration um, is is trying to crack down on, I think. Um, So just today, we had an announcement at the Summit for Democracy of of 24 countries getting together to build human rights considerations into their export control regimes on emerging technologies and software and dual-use goods. Normally, these regimes control things like military technologies, nuclear technologies, WMD, Um, But this is sort of the start of a new conceptualization that the risks that emerging technologies can pose are not just about building a military in the case of China. Many of these do have really strong military ties, um, but also for their potential use in repression and undermining human rights. And then quickly, just the second policy initiative that came out this week um, was an executive order from the U.S. on commercial spyware, essentially saying that the United States government will not use in an operational sense um, any kind of commercial spyware and encouraging other countries uh, to do the same. And I believe just a few minutes ago, an, a statement came out about uh, a number of countries that are are also taking potentially similar steps to prohibit the use of commercial spyware and, and crack down on the proliferation. So I think it's something that's important to so. think about.
0: So before we leave the Xinjiang region, I wanted to, and, and you all touched on this, but are there any technologies that you all are aware that are being utilized in these concentration or reeducation education camps that are being implemented in other areas of the country or outside of the country that we need to be concerned
4: about? Uh,
3: so there are um, the, the way to think about Xinjiang is that it was the um, incubation ground, it was the incubator of um, the surveillance state that China under Xi Jinping has been setting up for you know the last ten years or so. This is where the rollouts happened, and uh, you know many of these technologies have since spread to many other parts of the countries. Um, so you know, originally, uh, you know, so so social credit is a good example of of something that originally it did have good intentions. The idea was that, um, in China, uh, you know, many people uh, who lived in the countryside or say were left behind from the economic growth story could not get access to credit cards. There was never really a credit industry in China that allowed for, um, you know, a, a small land holding middle class to start to emerge, which is a key part of any, um, you know, any, uh, any state that's going to be successful. And so the idea behind social credit was um, a way to leapfrog that and to create a system where, you know, people could figure out if they could trust each other based on their or past um, transactions or debts or whatever it might be but this has since morphed you know in the typical uh, in the typical way of how an alliance would happen between the CCP and private companies like Alibaba um, social credit is now a system used to uh, mostly repress and monitor and um, do you know do whatever it is that uh, that you need to do in, in a you know communist party run state um, in Xinjiang social credit started out as a, a, a simpler system. In which you were ranked based on trustworthiness, it was you were you were either trustworthy or untrustworthy or maybe somewhere in between. Um, But, you know, now social credit works a little different across the country. It's more uh, varied and there are different levels of trust. But the whole idea is, um, you know, can the government, can the authorities trust a particular citizen? And if we don't, should we cut them off from, say, being able being able to fly on an airplane to buy a ticket or being able to rent an apartment or send their kids to school or whatever it might be. Um, These are the types of kind of sci-fi dystopia uh, technologies that are quite scary because it shows what happens when they're in the hands of a one party state as opposed to a democratic system in which there's a system of laws and checks and balances that will stop abuse of this tech.
0: Well, I understand if you're even caught with someone who is considered untrustworthy, you will then be examined at uh, more, you know, you'll be scrutinized much more heavily than before. And you don't even know what that person's rating is sometimes. So it's it's very scary. Um, and speaking of scary, I mentioned that if you didn't get rid of some apps after this webinar, then um, nothing will make you get rid of them. But that brings us to TikTok. So we'd love to hear from you all. Um, if If I'm talking to my teenager, If I'm talking to my mother, um, if I'm talking to someone who lives maybe in another country, what what are the reasons why TikTok is such a threat to society? And I'll put this out there for anybody who wants to take it,
4: and we can go around.
2: Well, maybe I can start first. I think TikTok is a threat beyond the Chinese government angle. It's really addictive, you know, like I... Sorry, I, I go and watched endless video, short videos for no reason. So, um, but uh, you know, since we're talking about China, so shift gear to talking about the the threat that uh, potentially the Chinese government can bring. One is really, um, you know, the the data the government can um, can collect through. Um, uh, through TikTok, um, you know TikTok has said over and over again that uh, uh, you know the company doesn't give data to the Chinese government. But uh, no, you know, as someone who studies China, I know that's just not possible. Even how the political system works in the country, you know, the government um, can wa- can have whatever it wants when it asks for it. Oftentimes, the government doesn't ask for it, but when it wants it, it will have it. Um, just because you know the government has that level of control to uh, uh over any companies whether it's private or um uh private the other it really is you know the censorship and uh, the disinformation the government can uh exert towards users in America through the company uh you know the um whether because you know in the US there's no law to uh make companies to disclose their algorithm or how they suppress and set, uh uh how they suppress and promote certain content uh uh so we don't know you know what's going on with the company uh, to what extent it's censoring um uh, content uh, that is critical towards the Chinese government. I mean, there has been sporadic uh, cases like, you know, one teenager was uh, talking about the the camps in Xinjiang, then her her account got uh, suspended. uh, You know, Human Rights Watch posted a Tiananmen Square uh, video of the tank man. Then Uh, I posted it. I could see it from my own account Then nobody could see from their account. Even they follow me. So there are these small examples Mm -hmm. that uh, indicate that there might be censorship, but we don't know. Then not to mention, you know, this information side of things. Maybe, you know, the company is pushing out uh, uh, pro-CCP content. Um, You know, we don't know to what extent that is influenced by the government or there are people who are just doing that uh, voluntarily. Yeah. So those are both the, data privacy issue and the the you know the disinformation and censorship issue. So
0: are there any insights any of you all can provide? I understand although I don't have TikTok that here in the US a lot of it is mindless entertainment. It's not particularly character building or educational. Although I do understand some people get some good recipes off there from time to time, but that what the Chinese people are getting from TikTok is very different than the content that we get here in the US. Um, it's very much focused on their patriotism to the country, serving the country, education, science, technology, STEM, you know, all those things. Any, any insights into the difference?
3: Uh, yes, so um, I, I use the Chinese version, Duyuan, uh, quite regularly and document what is possible, um, what you can and, search and for.
0: I'm sorry, what, what is it called? Duyuan. Okay, thank you, didn't know that. Yeah.
3: My Chinese is getting a little rusty. I haven't been back in a while. <laughs> or better that. than mine. <laughs> um, so uh, so the Chinese version, so, so th- there is a wall between the global version, which is known as TikTok, and the version in China, which is uh, Douyin. You can, it is possible to access it with the proper um, setup, but we can get into that a- another time if anyone's okay. interested. Um, it, so uh, in America, when you load TikTok, so t- TikTok claims that they have, uh, um, you know, firewalls that will prevent Kids under 12 or you know under 14 from accessing certain content, uh, you know we've tested that on TikTok and a lot of that turns out to be um, false based on the uh, the various um, keywords that that we could put in on the American version. So there are, there are these like spinoff terms that they use. So um, you know there there are TikTok videos for teenagers that talk about like how to use cocaine and how to use various drugs which is kind of quite disturbing if you type things like uh coke talk you know or or drug talk there are all these Hashtags that people use to get around it. And, you know, TikTok magically is not moving fast enough to block these, even though they claim they're blocking them. Um, In China, none of that exists at all. I mean, we have gone through and tried every single possible slang term that you could use for uh, drugs or prostitution or, um, you know, violence or whatever it might be. Very rarely we do find a strange video that's taken down very quickly. But other than that, um, almost all of these queries go straight to police notifications. It'll be like a police graphic or a police video that says, you know, you should um, stay away from drugs and be a good citizen, be productive and go to school. This is the content that they're showing, um, you know, teenagers and kids in China compared to what they're showing Americans here. I think that that signifies that, um, you know, in China, the government and the company, they know how damaging this content is they know the effects that it has on people getting addicted and sucked into this world. So, you know, there is an element of hypocrisy there on, on TikToks and Byte dances part. Why is it that in China, the, the content is so clean, whereas in America, you can just be a 13-year-old right. learning to snort cocaine and that's like somehow, okay, it's, it's truly bizarre.
0: Yeah, it's it is it is very concerning. So we talked a little bit in in the green room about the TikTok CEO's congressional testimony. Um, any feedback, any commentary you all have on that?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to go, but I also just wanted to pick up on one point from yeah. what Jeff just said on kind of the the difference between Douyin and and TikTok. I think it's a really interesting sort of example of how our kind of open system could be weaponized you know the the reason part of the reason that the you know the 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 information on the Chinese version of TikTok you know is more educational and better or or whatever but you know less addictive maybe uh, is that it can be sort of tightly controlled it's a controlled information environment whereas that's not really something that you know, as a government, certainly in the West, we don't we don't do. Um, And you could sort of the responsibility would be on the companies. Um, But that goes against sort of their whole business model of making money by selling ads, which requires us to be on the platform as much as possible and addicted as much as possible. So while I think that's a societal issue, um, I actually don't really see it Quite as much of a national security problem, perhaps only in so much as that allows allows these apps to collect more and more data. Um, but to your question, Suzanne, about the about the, the the CEO's hearing, I think one of the things that really kind of surprised me, I guess maybe two things, was just First of all, just how bipartisan the kind of skepticism and condemnation of TikTok was. I was frankly expecting um, the left to have much more time for the TikTok CEO's statements. Um, And I think the lawmakers came at it from slightly different angles. You know, you had more on the Democratic side talking about these issues of addiction, of youth mental health. Um, Maybe these issues that are that could be more common to all social media platforms. And you had, you know, maybe more on on the right talking about the Chinese ownership ties. But what was interesting and, and maybe even positive to me was that both sides sort of crisscrossed on that, you know, you had the The chair of the Republican chair of the committee call for call for federal data privacy legislation. That's something that would affect all social media apps. And you had a number of Democratic lawmakers also asking tough questions about TikTok's Chinese ownership. So there was a surprising amount of, I think, bipartisanship in that hearing. And something that I also was impressed with, which I understand is not really the main narrative coming out of the hearing, is I actually thought the lawmakers did a really good job of asking hard technical questions. This wasn't the Congress that we saw five years ago when Mark Zuckerberg testified first before, before Congress. Um, but what I'm hearing is actually that on TikTok itself, a lot of the commentary has actually been making fun of lawmakers for being technologically illiterate. Which I'm, you know, I'm curious on others' impressions, but that was not my impression at all. You know, they were asking questions about bytecode, about neural networks, and sort of really detailed aspects of of the code and how tiktok would oversee the code itself um, and, you know in this plan that it's putting forward to kind of guard against these national security concerns and so it's interesting to me that some of the narratives coming out of that seem to be quite the opposite of of you know what i at least observed in the hearing itself
0: well, that's, I think, an encouraging distinction that that you made there. So before we leave TikTok, I just wanted to get, um, and we're not going to hold anybody accountable to what your prediction is, but with some Western governments banning TikTok on government devices, what are the chances that the U.S. will ban it
3: altogether? I don't think that the U.S. is going to ban it altogether. I think that there are too many legal hurdles in the way, um, strategically and tactically, the most likely outcome to this saga is going to be the forced sale. This is something that um, the, Trump administra- uh, the Trump administration tried to do back in 2020. Um, they, the TikTok sued in court to stop this forced sale. It was going to be sold to Oracle, an American company. Um, they did sue successfully and get it blocked in a California court because the uh, the argument that they used, it was based on something called the Bourbon Amendment, which is a, a rather obscure law from the, the period at the end of the Cold War when um, the U.S. wanted to stop blocking foreign malign, um, you know, like former communist regimes such as Cuba from being blocked from um, the exchange of information that happens around the world. They wanted to try to open up, you know, those levers and, and you know, that would potentially, you know, lead to a place like Cuba embracing democracy eventually. That never, never quite happened, but that was the thinking behind this. And so, um, TikTok's lawyers have turned this uh, law on on its head and are using it to argue that, um, you know, be, because that was how it was in the early 1990s, TikTok is entitled to have, um, you know, a completely open information environment. That there's no legal way to uh, force a sale to any American um, company. Uh, so it's not clear yet what their strategy is going to be. the The latest order um, from the Biden administration is that. They, um, they have ordered the forced sale again. We don't know yet, uh, at least in public, who it's gonna be sold to. And we don't know how TikTok is gonna respond to this one. It's looking like it's gonna get harder and harder. The, um, the, the screws are being tightened and I don't think TikTok has, has as much of a way out anymore in particular after this hearing that was quite disastrous for the CEO.
0: Well, thank you um, for those insights. So any other
2: comments regarding TikTok before we move on? And I would add that it's very interesting that uh, you know because of TikTok, which is a Chinese app, that people start in America start to care about uh, data privacy more in general. So I think that's a you know a silver lining coming out of it. And I do hope the U.S. government, uh, the Congress, will pass a comprehensive law that regulates all social media companies, so we know what how our data being collected, what data being collected, and how they're doing content moderation, not just on TikTok, but on all social media companies. I think this is a, an urgent need, and I think there's bipartisan support. That's a good point to highlight. Lindsay? Yeah, I agree with both of those points, and kind of to your question on
1: what's going to happen. I think, you know, as Jeff mentioned, I, I think clearly forced sale would be by far the preferred outcome that would have a minimal impact on U.S. users. Um, it would solve the problems of TikTok's data collection and potentially propaganda um, around the entire world where it's used, not just in the United States. Um, and, and there's also precedent for that sort of action with CFIUS. Um, a, similar, a similar scenario happened a few years ago with the dating app Grinder, where those Chinese investors had to di- were forced to divest for related reasons um, related to the collection of data and sensitive information on U.S. citizens. So that's clearly the preferred outcome. I think there is really a big question mark though about whether ByteDance is going to go along with it um, or whether ByteDance will just decide, you know what, we don't really want to sell this. This algorithm is sensitive technology. We still have business operations throughout the world. We can just pull out of the United States even if the U.S. doesn't do sort of a full on ban, which might raise these First Amendment um, objections. So I certainly hope for for a sale. I think that would be the, by far the best outcome. Um, but there are at least, you know, two other parties in this tango as well.
0: So I promised I'd move on from TikTok, but I also really appreciate audience questions, so I'm going to move to one of those, and it's, it's kind of in the weeds, so if you all don't have the answer, you can take a pass, but uh, this viewer wants to know your thoughts about the TikTok software developer kit, SDK, and the data moving to TikTok via the third-party app ecosystem.
4: Any views on that, the difference? So maybe kind
3: of oh, Jeffrey. Uh, so um, so um, so I'm not speaking to the kit in particular, but um, one of the problems uh, with TikTok. This is something that they usually try to avoid saying publicly. Uh, is that the code was written in ByteDance um, by ByteDance engineers uh, based in Beijing. Um, there's still code in there that uh, you know some research groups have have looked at. You know what TikTok has been doing and it's not totally clear why some of these processes with regard to data transfer also the existence of their own browser the way that keystrokes are recorded um, some of this you know TikTok will often deny that this is significant but um you know these little details actually do have um, some significance in in the technology um because you know like most companies that most companies when they have an app they won't create their own browser the the Um, You know, in the corporate technology world, um, you know, what software developers will often say is that you create a browser if you want to gather data. That's an easier way to gather data on your users. Why does TikTok have its own uh, browser, you know, for opening websites? It's just uh, these little details like, you know, Google has Chrome, obviously, but it's not like, you know, you you don't um, you know, it's not like Google has some app and you're required to use Chrome from, right. you know, from that app or anything. So it, it's a little bit of a different situation. Um, and, the you know, I, I've always just been struck by how TikTok has these kind of little items of software significance that are often overlooked, and they are red flags as to what data they might be gathering behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, subtle enough by themselves, maybe not alarming, but when you Put them all together. um, It's it's quite concerning. So my next question was going to be on AI, but I have an audience question on AI next, so I'll I'll move to that. Um, So this um, attendee wants to know: Are there any AI algorithms implemented by the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang intentionally unsophisticated, simple, or broad in order to keep the Uyghurs constantly on edge, or on their best behavior, or in line? Great question.
3: Uh, I think that uh, the situation in Xinjiang is ruled by uncertainty. Um also uh you know it, so just a shout out Human Rights Watch has done really great work um on the region also really helpful with my own work just just you know gathering research it's it's a very tough region to, to research because of all the restrictions on what you can actually do there and talk about. Um it is um you know if you go go and read the Human Rights Watch reports um you know read what's out there there are researchers who have documented This. um, It does seem that the model is to use blunt and unsophisticated algorithms designed to to, uh, keep people on their toes. It's the uncertainty um, that keeps the Uyghur people in line because they don't know where that line is. It's the riddle, like how far can I step in my daily life? If I if I leave my apartment at 9:30 a.m. today as opposed to 9 a.m., is that going to be a red flag on the camera outside my house? Why would I change? my daily routine? Um, and is it going to send a, a nudge to a local police officer on his smartphone and tell him to come over and check up on me? Um, this is what keeps people in line. And this is also in my own interviews with uh, Uyghur refugees, something that they often talk about is the the psychological effects of not knowing where that line is. It, it forces them often to, I guess they, they say mute themselves or mute, mute the identity, kind of mute the soul almost. Um, if you have something you want to do, you want it to take that trip to the city, to Beijing, and go go shopping for the weekend, whatever it might be. Um, not possible. Just don't bother because the risks are too high of doing something small that might trigger the system against you.
1: Yeah, I would also add to that, onto that point that, you know, in the context of Xinjiang, there have been a, a number of discussions on sort of does this constitute a genocide, I think the State Department has indicated that there are elements of what's happening in Xinjiang that it, it uses as a genocide, a number of parliaments and other countries have characterized it um, as such as well and one of the, in addition to sort of the bodily harm that is one of the kind of determinants of whether something is a genocide, the um like psychological or emotional harm is also and the fear is also a piece of that determination so this kind of Uncertainty of you know where do you cross the line, how far can you go, and you know, in talking to your family and that sort of thing, and practicing in practicing faith, I think is part of that culture of fear. You know, goes into that ability to destroy a population. And the second thing I would say on that is also you know this is the context of this conversation is the export of China's surveillance to uh, to the rest of the world, and to to a related extent, I think we see the self censorship happen even within de- democratic societies of, you know, not wanting to criticize China, particularly in in terms of our business ties when, you know, I think in at the, going back to sort of the TikTok hearing, but I think it might be common across um, uh, many multinational CEOs. Um, he was asked specifically whether China was committing genocide in Xinjiang and really prevaricated and didn't give a straight answer. And I think, you know, not just the TikTok CEO, but I think it's possible that many many business leaders um, from democratic countries would have a similar answer because of that
0: self-censorship of
1: not being sure really where the line is and not wanting to offend China.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a powerful, just that keeping people on edge, um, powerful tool of of, impression, of oppression um, in their society.
2: Yacho, anything to add? Uh, maybe just, I would totally agree with both Jeffrey and uh, Lindsay, um, just, you know, give you a little example of how that is exercised for example i mean all social media have to censor uh, their platform but the government never actually gave a list to social media companies saying those are the words those are the pictures you have to censor so social media company have all have to develop their own list of things to censor it's a way of for them to figure out you know what to censor where's the line so you know it's not just a psychological uh, game on people it's a psychological game on. So- entities like a company and then you know it's become like their intellectual property of what to censor you know it's like it's, it's their treasured thing that they develop that you know those are the things that i need to censor to make sure my company stay open it's a good point we have about well, about 10 minutes left, so if there's any other
0: audience questions, I will try to get to them. Um, please feel free to send those in. But, you know, we do know that, that China is oppressing um, their, their citizens um, through all these different uh, modes of advanced technologies. Um, are, are there any actions we can take as an international community, um, realistically anyway, um, to curb this type of oppres- oppressive and really
4: malicious behavior?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is putting it out in the open and like having conversations like this one, having world leaders talk about these issues and stand really firm against them. Um, you know, I think some of, the, some of the efforts on export controls, you know, what we, what we saw came out today was kind of a statement of a code of conduct to build human rights into export controls. But a number of unilateral U.S. export controls have actually focused on not selling artificial intelligence enabled or the, the basis of AI chips to and, and the tools that make those semiconductors to the the PRC, because specifically, both both for military reasons, but also because of of human rights abuses. So I think there are controls we can do, you know, at the very least to make sure that we're not actively aiding and abetting in this surveillance. Um, But yeah, also just sort of continuously calling it out, not, not allowing, you know, businesses or or even, even diplomats with various interests to kind of paper over those, those differences and paper over the abuses.
0: Yeah, you think conversations like this that NSI is gracious enough to host, it's a lot of it's education. Jeffrey?
3: So um, to give a specific example, following up on, on um, a technology that I think we all need to focus on, semiconductor technologies uh, are critical This is an area where China is still uh, generations behind the major semiconductor producers. But by ensuring that the Chinese government and um, major surveillance companies can't get access to the most advanced semiconductors, we can curb um, so many of these threats. We can blunt them. We won't erase them completely. Um, But if they don't have the processing power to create a total surveillance dystopia, then it's going to fall flat on its face. It's going to be um, old-fashioned authoritarianism, which is bad, you know, still very bad, but at least we can weaken um, this system in some way. I just returned from Taiwan, uh, actually on a trip with the German Marshall Fund, um, where Lindsay's from, uh, and uh, qu- quite a trip. We, we visited the, the major uh, Taiwanese semiconductor makers. Um, one of the big things that they kept emphasizing was the importance of multilateralism in um, semiconductor uh, manufacturing and processes. There are concerns that um, the US right now with the the Chips and Sciences Act uh, might be acting too unilaterally to bring industry, uh, to chip away industry from places like Taiwan and to to attempt to build it unilaterally um, in the US, which will take generations to master. It's gonna take a decade or more to be able to design these extremely advanced semiconductors reliably. Um, And so, you know, one of the big um, pushes right now is like, well, why don't, you know, why isn't there a, um, you know, a a, a semiconductor consortium that uh, stands against um, the PRC in particular? There are four countries, Taiwan, Korea, Poland, and the U.S. that produce the most advanced technologies. Uh, You know, why isn't there some kind of mechanism for direct cooperation between these four that would curb a lot of these threats? So just one idea to throw out there if any policymakers are in the audience.
0: Um, One of our virtual attendees has a suggestion. Um, He suggests that we ban China from the Olympics. So just wanted to share that with the group as well. Here's another question. How has COVID-19 enabled the CCP to further develop or use technology to track and repress its citizens? Any feedback from that question
4: from the team here? Um, I mean,
2: China had the, uh, you know, the health Uh, Code app, Um, you know, everybody has to have it. And then everywhere they uh, had to have it, everywhere they go, they have to scan the app. So the government collected massive, massive data. And uh, even during, you know, China was, um, people were subject to the Jaconia zero COVID policy. You could see how effective it was. Like you know, they identify they test they identify a person who was positive, but they were able to find anybody who was related to, to the person and the person's itinerary in the past you know two weeks, every step of where the person went were posted online. You can see you know to what extent the government is able to know pe- where people are and who are around those people, even when you're you know in a train, they were able to identify who's sitting next to this person. So you know the app has you know been dismantled, but the data is still there. You know it it's not a country, there's transparency, there's a rule of law. people have no idea you know how the government is still using the data, whether this data have been deleted or right. you know, I'm sure that uh, you know probably it's still there and the government is using it to further develop so further its AI technology to survey people.
0: So we have several questions from Jefferson Berry. Um, Jefferson, thanks for your insightful questions. One is, is the capture of these technologies part of the CCP trying to take over Taiwan? We haven't talked about Taiwan at all. We didn't talk about it in the green room or in our prep call, but any any comments regarding um, these oppressive technologies and the relationship, the very strained relationship with um, Taiwan?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm happy to take this a stab at this one. Great. I mean, Normally, I approach everything from a technology angle, sort of by trade, Um, and so I think it's very tempting to see semiconductors as like this linchpin issue in the U.S.-China-Taiwan triangle, you know, the fact that we are incredibly dependent on TSMC, which is right next door to mainland China for the most advanced semiconductors is obviously a strategic vulnerability, if you believe, as many policymakers do, that the ability to build these systems is actually going to depend heavily on advances in compute, namely semiconductors and and at the cutting edge of these low nanometer levels. All that said, you know, from what I've read and understood about the the relationship between China and Taiwan, it really does seem like there are deeper historical reasons why she is trying to, uh, you know, potentially forcibly or, or, or just coercively um, sort of re-enter Taiwan into, into the PRC. Um, and so I would tend to think that those issues ultimately are more at play than kind of getting the crown jewels of TSMC's semiconductor production lines.
0: Any other thoughts on that? That was a good explanation, Lindsay. And um, thank you, Jefferson.
3: I, I agree completely with Lindsay. Um these are these are uh, historical um debates. It is historical thinking that goes back quite far. China um is uh, the borders that currently exist around China are imperial borders um that were drawn uh, under an empire that existed 150 years ago. I mean this is not uh, you know something that that uh, that you know simply exists now because of semiconductors and, and the way that the industry is structured globally. Um, you know China does use this propaganda of the, this five thousand years of history going back. This idea of this unified um, you know ethnic nation. Uh, you know that involves uh, Uyghurs and Tibetans and, and Han Chinese all living in harmony. Um, this is the propaganda line that is often used, and uh, you know it's like looking at Taiwan. It's almost um, you know one of that. It's supposed to be one of that family, and you know there there is a historical reason for that. You know that cause of invasion um, to exist. Uh, you know and I, I don't agree with it obviously, but that's Absolutely. how they see the, they, That's how they see it in the in the propaganda system
0: there. So I see Gabriel um, has popped back on, but I still have the mic for about two or three minutes, Gabriel. So I just wanted to kind of close on this and and get a sense from you all, um, particularly you, Um, Amiacho, we talked about this a little bit previously, but, you know, what what some of the collateral damage is um, for us domestically um, with the strained relationship with China that is becoming increasingly more contentious.
2: Well, I really hope there's no collateral damage, but, uh, you know, there will always be and the, really, you know, how to mitigate that. And I already see some kind of policies um, proposed by legislators on uh, on a state level that I think is not constructive and it's, uh, it won't address the CCP threat. And also, it's gonna have negatively impact on the Chinese diaspora living in the United States. Uh, I'm part of the Chinese diaspora, so I care about this deeply. For example, you know, in Texas, they tried. There are legislations proposed to ban Chinese people uh, ba- buying property or banning Chinese students from studying in the U.S. I think those are totally wrong policies. I came to the United States to study. I don't want you know a younger version of me get banned. So you know, the CCP threat is real. It's you know but we have to, it's big, it's real, and we have to, but we have to address it uh, in the right way and proportionately.
1: Yeah, and also adding on, I think that, you know, those are, Amazing points. And in some cases, particularly in the science and technology areas, we've seen proposals to ban Chinese students and graduate students in particular studying um, scientific fields. I think in the theory that somehow that they're going to use that as as a spying tool. But I mean, that that would also in addition to the the points that you made about the effects on the on the diaspora, which are incredibly important because, you know, we are a vibrant, open society of immigrants. Um, It's also a total own goal for our scientific enterprises, Um, you know, I was in I was in a lab and I think I was maybe one of the few Americans, and it consisted of scientists and engineers from around the world and that's kind of the lifeblood of our innovation and why so many engineers and scientists want to come study in the United States and give us that competitive edge so those policies could also be quite undermining from from the innovation perspective as well.
4: Jeffrey, anything to close
3: with? Um, well, you know, I think it was a great conversation. There were um, lots of different problems and challenges to unpack, but uh, I, I find it fascinating how uh, many of the topics that we've covered today do do go into this common thread um, as to you know what exactly the threat is that the threat that comes from um, the CCP. Uh, I mean, the, the CCP as it exists today in 2023. Um, it is the greatest threat to democracy um, so far in this century. We are seeing um, the resurgence of an authoritarian force that many people once thought would not grow in this way. I mean, you know, dial back the clock th- 20 to 30 years. And there was talk of the, the movement of globalization and free trade, uh, creating the, the middle class of China who would rise up and create um, their, their great liberal democracy that was supposedly coming. And this is shown um, in the public speeches and statements of so many prominent policymakers from that time. Um, I think that we've learned the, the opposite is true, that we, um, you know, rather than the PRC becoming more like uh, the rest of the world in, in, in the form of a more liberal democracy, uh, we are more at risk of um, centering ourselves and becoming more like the CCP um, you know, in the interests of maintaining that trade. And I think that's the trap we've fallen into. We've created a very intricate, uh, complex global system that is so tightly woven into this extremely authoritarian police state that abuses human rights, that commits genocide, that bullies its neighbors. Um, and now, you know, I think that many policymakers in, in Washington, D.C., Um, have been kind of caught, you know, with their, their, their hands are like, they're not sure what to do about this. And it's just, it's extremely complicated and extremely delicate deciding, you know, where to untether that trade, where to, where to untether the relationship and where to maintain it, because one wrong move could really cause this to escalate. And, you know, a a war um, would not be good for anyone. It would be devastation.
0: Well, great. Well, thank you, Jeffrey, Yacho, and Lindsay. Um, I am sure there are some social media channels folks can follow you on that we have not discussed today that are a little more appropriate if they have other questions. And Gabriel, you've been
5: great. Um, I'll let you close things out. Perfect. Thank you so much, Suzanne, um, and for moderating today's panel. Um, Thank you to our amazing panelists for sharing your really in-depth insight from a different angles, but also we got to the same picture, which I think is really important. Uh, a few quick programming notes for NSI. NSI is excited to be continuing our global repression programming throughout 2023. Our next event's gonna be examining ongoing collaboration between these repressive regimes, looking at the Russia, the Chinas, the North Koreas of the world, and how that common alignment is, is a threat to our national security and what partners and allies can do um, to help that. Additionally, we have a new event Countering Chinese global tech ambitions and the e- e- U.S.-EU partnership in smart innovation. So this event will be um, more details on this event. It's, it's April 12th. More details will be at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu, our website. So please go and check that out. And finally, don't forget to check out our flagship podcast. Um, called The Fault Lines, which features our very own um, Executive Director, Jamil Jaffer, our Deputy Executive Director, Jessica Jones, and our Senior Fellow here, Lester Munson, um, which will get you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security um, and foreign policy debates, Shaking Up America. Once again, I'm Gabriel Otis. Thank you on behalf of NSI, and thank you to all of our speakers.